everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cancer Mom. Finally, it's me, Noor. The last time I recorded was several months ago. Uh, we were still in treatment with Aiden. Um, and uh, I had done a little update about why there had been no new episodes. But long story short, I was just not happy. I spiraled. It was rough. And I could say it was because of the complications that we had post-chemo with my son. But it was a lot of other things. So on today's episode, let's talk about trauma. We finished treatment on May 6th. Um, Aiden's ANC was beautiful. We were being discharged. Being out of treatment was basically nothing like I had imagined. It included a visit to the ER, which led to a week-long hospital admission, and that was just 10 days after being discharged from his final round. We had gone to the hospital because he had some labored breathing, and I felt like his heart rate just seemed elevated. But once we got there, we were seeing four different specialists, none of whom could pinpoint what was going on with him. His body was not making platelets, and he basically needed platelet infusions almost daily. His body was full of fluids to the point where he was nearly unrecognizable. He was so swollen. His heart was surrounded by fluids, and that's something called a pericardial effusion. That put him at a risk for a heart attack. My four-year-old, risk for a heart attack. On top of the platelet transfusions, he was also getting blood transfusions nearly twice a week. His blood pressure was astronomically high, like dangerously high. And for the first time, his doctor, who had just been so chill for the last seven months, just, I would say that she started to unravel. You know, she started to crack a little bit. It was always, she was always a voice of reason. She was always calm. But it was the first time that I heard her say, this isn't good. And I'm worried and just looking frazzled. And then she would say he's at a risk for and the risks just didn't end at heart attack he was at a risk for stroke seizures brain hemorrhage temporary paralysis and that's just to name a few she had not seen this reaction with other patients but she had done the research and found that it can happen aiden was showing signs of something called thrombiotic microangiopathy tmi it's an autoimmune disease that destroys the body's naturally forming platelets. And for brain cancer kids, this means the inability to protect itself from a brain hemorrhage. So here I am, you know, out of treatment. The thing that I had been waiting for for so long. And we weren't doing cancer-specific treatment anymore. But now we were doing hematology, cardiology, nephrology, just to name a few. And for the first time since diagnosis, I just felt lost. And I probably felt more lost than I did at diagnosis. In November, when oncologists came through the doors three hours after his first CAT scan, like I knew where we were headed. I knew what this was. And none of the doctors felt like this was something they hadn't seen before. You know, as the process went forward, nothing seemed to be out of the norm for them. Everything was standard care. Aiden was a standard care cancer child, which when you live in the cancer world is truly a blessing, you know. Even though brain cancer is terrible and it's an awful place to be in, nothing his body was doing, even with the deadly disease inside of it, seemed to stump any doctors. So to see his doctor stumped was difficult, to say the least. 
this condition can happen when when you do a stem cell transplant it can just happen over months and months of getting chemo medication because chemo destroys your healthy cells so after cycle after cycle after cycle of your body destroying the healthy cells in it um, when it's time to get back on the wagon your body can sometimes decide that it doesn't know how to do that anymore it was really hard because we just didn't know what this meant Aiden would have had to be approved for an insanely insanely expensive drug called eclusimab it basically for um, a person Aiden's size maybe a year older than him a single dose would be somewhere around thirty to $40,000. And we didn't know how many doses he would need. We didn't know how bad his condition would be, but we were waiting for insurance approval. And until we were waiting for insurance approval, it was just, you know, every day we were at clinic. Every other day we were at clinic. We were happy when his platelets were going to like 25. And just if you're not aware of what platelets should be, the, the normal level of your platelets is 150, in a 150 range. So that's on the low normal side. So 25 for him was an accomplishment at the time. It was extremely nerve wracking. Um, you know, I have two little boys and all they want to do is throw toys at each other's head. And all I could think of was, oh my God, his brother's going to smack him in the head with something and cause a brain bleed. Like these are the actual thoughts that are going through my mind. You know, at this point, yeah, he's not getting cancer treatment, but we're just trying to build his body back up. But this was May. By the beginning of June, things did start to get better. Aiden's body started to climb, though slowly it did start to climb. But I was just so shell-shocked from it all that I just, it was difficult to appreciate it. I just kept feeling like the rug was going to be pulled out from under me at any moment. Then on June 5th, designer Kate Spade took her life. And three days later, Anthony Bourdain, world-renowned chef, traveler and writer, took his own life. Now, I'm not some big Kate Spade fan, and I didn't follow everything that Anthony Bourdain did, but for some reason, these deaths rocked me. Yeah, I'm not an expert, and I don't know them personally, but just reading the reports and statements from family members, they said that they had no idea that these people were battling any demons and that these deaths just came extremely unexpectedly. I saw these well-established adults deciding that their life wasn't worth living anymore. I thought, they have everything in the world, and here they are feeling this world is just not worth it. And I began to spiral. I fell into a very, very dark place. I felt exhausted, I felt lost, I felt broken. I felt like the treatment we gave our son to save his life was destroying him. Then a week later, June 11th, we had Aiden's first post-treatment MRI. We got the news that every one of us cancer parents, cancer families, just wants to hear no evidence of disease. Aiden was officially in remission. And the doctors told us that not just that, his platelets were soaring. His body was starting to build its way back up and he didn't need any blood transfusions. In fact, he hadn't in a long time. At the time we were ready to celebrate Aiden achieving his remission status and that his body was finally as normal as it could be again, multiple children were losing their cancer battles. While we were supposed to be basking in the joy of being cancer-free, children whose parents I had connected with over the last few months were relapsing. 
And just as this was all happening, I learned of a family that had not one, but two children finding medulloblastoma at the same time. Two kids in the same family, a little girl and her little brother fighting cancer at the same time. At the same time, miles away in our own country, children were being separated from their parents, babies from nursing mothers, pulled from their mother's breasts in our own country. Parents who had gone through hell to escape from dire conditions, traveled through things we cannot even imagine to seek refuge in this country were being imprisoned while their children were being held captive in cages, put on planes, sent to opposite sides of the country. Children who were nonverbal, children who may be sick, children who just didn't understand. When you're in clinic or when you're in a hospital, you know, cancer setting with your children, there are children of all shapes, sizes, color, race, background, sexual orientation. I mean, there are children in those hospitals from all kinds of different families. We have shared our room and we have shared our spaces and we have shared toys in the playroom with children who have come here specifically for cancer treatment. I've made friends with people who have come here from Jamaica, from Guyana, from the Philippines, from Mexico, from Ecuador. There are little children that have become friends with my children who know Aiden by name and who share the same toys as him. They don't speak a single word of English and the kids, I don't even know how they communicate, but they play together and they laugh together and those parents have the same look in their eyes as I do. This exhausted joy that we feel just looking at our children that are fighting this great big fight. And I know that you might have some opinion about laws and people crossing the border illegally or illegally, but it's as simple as this. Think about the moment that your kid was diagnosed with cancer. At that moment, it didn't matter how much something cost, it didn't matter how expensive surgery might be, it didn't really matter what was going on. As far as you were concerned, if you had to continue on the rest of your life, living in crippling debt just to save your kid's life, you would do it in that minute. So if you think about it that way, that you would give and do whatever you could to save your kid's life from cancer, you have to consider the fact that parents that are coming into the United States seeking refuge, seeking asylum from areas where there is war, where there is mass murder, where there is genocide, they're coming to save their children's life. And when we get to the border and we say, well, the law is the law, so turn back around, or even worse, put them in cages, separate children from their mothers, and then ship them to the other side of the country and say that that's okay because that's a law, I mean, it's just inhumane. You know, I always say that the upside of cancer has been that I haven't had to really pay attention to the news as much. It's easier to live in Trump's America when you have cancer to deal with. And I don't mean that in that we have better access to health care or anything like that. That still sucks. And one day I'll do an episode about the breakdowns of every single cost I've had to appeal for my son's emergency procedures. But I digress. When you're busy living in the hospital, making sure your kid just makes it to another day, you don't focus on Trump tweets or news updates. You know, I've been wired to the drama since election. Since November 2016, I, I psychotically check the news. I angrily watch CNN. I just I, I would go on Twitter and just say, what the fuck again, again, again. And it wasn't until November of 2017 that I basically checked out. I'm not here to push my liberal agenda at you. 
Just kidding. I totally am. I'm going to push my liberal agenda at you. But since November 2017, I had no clue what was going on. I mean, I knew I tried as much as I could to follow it, but I was always like two or three days behind, you know, when when things started to happen, like when I would find out that Stormy Daniels did something or Michael Cohen did something or there's a new thing in the Mueller, Mueller investigation, it was like, OK, well, that's good to know. But I was always a couple of days behind on the information. But then when the family separation stories began rolling out in the numbers that they did, I just I couldn't shelter myself from it anymore. It was as if like nine months of Trump sedation wore off and all this rage just surged through my brain and my heart at once. I was sad. I was angry. I was enraged. I was crying all the time. You know, my kid was cancer free. This is something I wanted, but I was just so upset about how unfair it all seemed that I couldn't enjoy it. I was irritable. My husband and I hit a rough patch and it hit me that all of this anger that I had, all this feeling that I was feeling was just, it was PTSD. I was showing signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. I was guilt-ridden. I felt out of control. I felt angry. I wanted to go to people while at the same time retreating from people. I was mad that all this was happening. I felt sad that it was unfair. I just felt so miserable. So I had to take a beat, or rather a few beats. I took some time to focus on myself and I actually realized why these suicides impacted me so deeply. You know, it's not, I'm not rich, I'm not famous, but I have a good life and I wasn't willing to accept it. And I just, I wasn't willing to accept it and I wasn't ready to accept the happiness from the good around me. And I realized that the suicides hit me at my core because doing this, escaping this life, not accepting what's in front of you. Dying just didn't seem like a faraway idea. You know, it was, in fact, it may have even been a daily whisper in the back of my mind. So what did I do to make it better? First, I accepted that this isn't normal, but also that my life and your life, anyone's life, especially after cancer, is not normal. And it won't be, probably ever. And it doesn't have to be. Life after cancer does not have to be happy. And it doesn't have to feel the way that it was supposed to feel before. You know, I expected it to be, and, and it wasn't. And it just made me spiral more. I had these expectations that we'd go home from chemo and his hair would come back and everything would be fine. I did not know that we would still be stuck at clinic and in the hospital for a full month after, not knowing what was going on inside of his body. It's not going to ever be the normal that you had before. And that's something you, once you accept it and once you embrace that, it's kind of nice to find your new normal. And finding your new normal is really the goal. Happiness is not necessarily the goal at this point. I hear from a lot of people that happiness is a choice. And, you know, I do agree with that to some degree. But I think there's there's just way too emphasis on being happy. You don't have to be happy. Happiness may be a choice, but when you say it that way, I mean, happiness is also, it isn't the goal. Society's idea of happiness is usually tied with all these unattainable things that they make us think that we can easily attain, like wealth and fame and notoriety. Like if you were just rich enough or smart enough or successful enough or famous enough or thin enough or pretty enough or healthy enough or cancer-free 
free enough, you will be happy again. But that's just not true. But they make us think that that's the case. And when you achieve those things and you're still not happy, it's devastating. You know, you find that the world has lied to you and you're not at all happier than you were before. It makes you feel like everything that you did, all of it was just for nothing. So I told myself, I just, I don't need to be happy. I don't need to hit some type of goal to feel better. I just need to accept what's happening around me. I just need to be present. I need to be present. I need to literally smell the flowers around me. It's, and it's never been about seeing things around you and going, wow, yay, things are so great. Because a lot of the times, things are not great. Most of the times, things are not that great. They're just like either just fine or for us, a lot of times they're really crummy. And it's just about taking in what's happening around you and allowing your human body to feel human feelings. Like if something is bothering you, you can get angry. If something is making you sad, you can get sad. You you know, feeling pain, having a nice long screaming cry, laughing hysterically, and sometimes just zoning and zenning out is what you need. I started to focus on that and I just did the shit that I enjoyed. Even if that means like their chores, like organizing a closet or painting, or taking a walk or a bath or a long shower or just snuggling with my kids, which though it makes me happy, also makes me cry a lot. I often just sob holding my children. And I think if somebody saw me from the outside, they'd like try to hug me and be like, oh, she's so sad, this seems so sad. But it's actually extremely, it's an extremely cathartic experience for me. It feels good to just press their skin against mine and feel their heart beating and just take in the moment and soak it in and remember that it's a fleeting moment. It's emotional and it raw, it's raw and it just, it feels so good. I also started talking to a therapist and just being able to talk about things with someone helps. You know, PTSD brings with it the feeling of wanting people, but then also hating people. Like I want to be with my friends, but the thought of talking to them and feeling like they don't understand my experience is sometimes really heartbreaking to think about. And so I tell myself rather than having that heartbreak, I would just rather retreat because I I know that they're not going to understand. But I learned that I need to experience the moment for what it is. And I don't always have to feel fulfilled or amazed or whatever by the experience that I'm having. You know, with cancer, you do want to make the best of everything just because you don't have a ton of time. You know, it makes you feel like no time should be wasted. And so even though that's true, you don't have to let that control every moment of your life. Sometimes things will be boring and you can just learn and move on. Sometimes people will hurt you and you can just learn and move on. Sometimes strangers will surprise you and you should let that be what it is. You should accept that for what it is. What you shouldn't do is compare strangers helping you with close people who you expect to do the same because then it's just you're going to feel your anger about the bad experience. It just becomes a really messy situation. So I just I stopped focusing on all these other things and I I started focusing on things that made me calm. You know, I cook more, I read more, I snuggle more. There's more hugs and kisses. There's more I love yous. There's a lot more lazy, sunny summer days and it's nice. You know, I was talking to Blossom, who is one of my pals over at clinic. Hi, Blossom. And she said to me, you know, remember after September 11th when everything was like on red alert? You know, we had the, I don't know, if, I don't know if you remember. I hope that you're old enough to if you're listening to this. And if you're not, then LOL, I'm old. But there was this like 
I don't know if it was like a pyramid or what, but it was this it was this thing that would always be on TV about like where we are in terms of like alert for like the next attack. And it was like, I think it was like red, orange, yellow, whatever, green. And we were in red alert for a long time after September 11th. And then it went down to like orange. And I think, are we still in orange or yellow? I don't know. I should have looked this up before going into the story. But you know, for a long time, it felt like, oh my God, like, how are we going to go to the mall? And how are you going to go on a plane? And all these things and everything was so hard. And even though we got to orange and things were still difficult, we started to adapt to being in level orange. It wasn't, everything wasn't filled with anxiety anymore. Even though you did have the worry of something bad happening, it just, it didn't take over every single moment of your life anymore. And so just as we got used to living in that type of, I'm worried, but I'm not gonna let my worry take over me feeling. I feel that I'm getting there now. You know, I had expected that we would end treatment and everything would go back and I'd be in the green again. Like everything would be fine. But when it didn't, which it shouldn't, because it won't, because I'm a human being, I was like, oh my God, how am I going to survive? Like, I just felt so full of panic and I felt like, how am I going to get through this? Like, how am I going to be a good mom? How am I going to be a good wife? How am I just going to be a good friend, a human? Like, how, how can I care about people that are suffering around the world? Like, how everything just became this, like, overwhelming feeling of, like, I can't help myself, I can't help anyone, and, I, you know, everything sucks. And it got really hard, but what I had to tell myself was, bitch, calm down and then I said like not everything needs to be tackled you know things things will happen as they need to everything so far in the last nine months happened as it needed to Aiden's diagnosis happened as it needed to and I survived it my husband and I were talking about this and the idea of doing all the things that we did over the last nine months, the idea of spending as much time as we did at the hospital, it's it's like nauseating to think about because you're like, oh my God, how did I do that? The idea of doing it again is so hard to think about, but we did it and we've been through it. And even though it's difficult to accept that we were able to do it, we should celebrate that we were able to do it and we should let that confidence of being able to do it, of remembering that we were able to do it, carry us through these really difficult days. You know, remission is a dream that you're afraid you're going to wake up from. And there is this immense amount of guilt and fear of living in a remission. You're constantly reminded of even your own mortality. And, you know, in the last few months, the things that have happened in the media and politics and and even with these families, they just showed me that life is for living with your loved ones, your kids and your family and how it does it does take cancer to remind you of your own mortality. And it does take cancer to remind you that even when things are shitty, they're really good. And it does take cancer to remind you that even when you're crying and you feel shitty, you should be grateful that your brain is able to even think of those emotions, that your body is even functioning that way, that your brain connects to your heart or whatever it is and sends the messages to your eyes to make you cry. And when you cry, it actually feels better. Like those are things to be unbelievably grateful for. Recently, we had Aiden's final scan before we had his port removed. And the day of the scan, I was actually very zen 
I was able to kind of just stay present as much as I could. And the scan was up, I think, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. We didn't get to clinic until around 1. And until, I think, maybe five minutes before we got the results of a scan, I remained pretty calm. Like, I didn't freak out, even the days leading up to it. In the past, I mean, I didn't sleep for days. I was angry. I was so irritable. But this time, I was I was fairly zen about everything. I just kind of stayed in the moment as much as I could until the kids were, like, hungry. We had Noah with us. Um, he was just being crazy at the clinic. Aiden was, like, jumping around everywhere. He was shoving, you know, things in his mouth still that he was just, you know, being a regular four-year-old who had just taken an unexpected three-hour nap at, you know, nine in the morning. And so he was just, it was just a lot. And we were just kind of doing the parenting thing. And all of a sudden, while we're doing the parenting thing of like, don't put that in your mouth and don't hit your brother with that. And oh, that's disgusting. Put that down. You know, all of a sudden it hit me like we're a clinic and oh my God, like all this is happening. And maybe I shouldn't yell at him because what if, what are the results going to be? And it was, it was just the last literally like five minutes of of us waiting and we were in the little clinic kitchen trying to feed the kids lunch and I was so frustrated and Dr. Gardner walked in and she said everything's clear and I was so in I was so caught up in parenting my kids in the most normal way that you parent a four-year-old and a one and a half year old that even as she said it it like I was like oh oh okay like I it kind of like all of a sudden hit me like, right, we're here at clinic to get these results. And right, you're freaking out and you're annoyed with your kids because you're stressed out. And right, you haven't really been thinking about the importance of today all day because you've just trying to stay in the moment that you're in. And even though it was like weird in that moment, I was really grateful that I was able to overcome my own anxiety because that was not who I was for the last few months. It was really difficult. Um, so we had you know, a good scan. And we will have the next one in November. He had his port removed. Um, He's potty trained. So we're, the trajectory is looking up, but the next one is in November. And until that one happens, we will continue to try to stay in the orange and try to just focus on seeing as much of the green as we can until the next scan gets here. So I didn't record for a while. And, um, you know, it took me a while to get back into it, to get back into here and recording. And I had to remind myself why I do this. And, um, you know, I started this podcast because I needed to say the words. I needed to speak the words and my feelings and my thoughts out loud. And I knew I needed to do this because I had been craving this like cathartic release really badly in especially in those early months the people around me just didn't understand even though it was you know they were incredibly loving and wonderful and helpful I just felt like people weren't going to understand if I try to really release what was on my mind the people who really pulled the real me out of me were the ones that I wasn't afraid to be judged around they were the ones that I didn't feel misunderstood around the ones that I didn't feel alone around you know, that feeling of, of feeling more understood than even the people that you've known your whole life, that came out of me when I talked to other parents going through what we were going through. And that was in the very early months. And that is what it had encouraged me to do the podcast because I wasn't sure, I didn't know if there were other people out there who felt lonely and didn't have that access to a voice that was saying the things that were on their mind. So today's episode 
is for Edie's mom and Anna's mom and Bruce's mom and Lincoln's mom and Tharik's mom and Pierce's mom and Daniel's mom. And those are the moms very early on who just made me feel not alone. And so I hope, ladies, if you're listening, and if you're not, that's okay too, that if you listen today, that you felt a little less alone. And if you, I'd never talked to you before and you're just listening because you listen, then I hope that this episode made you feel less alone. I had felt very lonely for the last few months and just doing this has helped because hopefully it'll get to an ear that uh, feels some sort of connection with me. Anyway, thank you for listening. As always, you can find me on the internet at Cancer Mom Podcast on Facebook and Cancer Mom Noor and um, on the gram and the Twitter. Um, And, you know, as always, never give up and fuck cancer. Bye, guys. Thank you.